Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at body, mind, and death. My guest is David Lorimer, who is the program director of the Scientific and Medical Network. He is the editor of a number of books, including The Spirit of Science from Experiment to Experience. Thinking Beyond the Brain, A Wider Science of Consciousness, The Circle of Sacred Dance, which is about Peter Dionov's Panurythmy. He is also the author of many books, including Survival, Death as a Transition, Whole in One, The Near-Death Experience and the Ethic of Interconnectedness. Resonant Mind, Life Review in the Near-Death Experience, and most recently, A Quest for Wisdom, Inspiring Purpose on the Path of Life. David lives in France, and now I'll switch over to the internet interview. Hello, David. It's a real pleasure today to be with you. And with you, Jeff. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been the program director of the Scientific and Medical Network now for over three decades, I believe, which means that uh, you've been exposed to the widest range of cutting-edge ideas in science and medicine and, and in, in philosophy. Uh, your new book, A Quest for Wisdom, is, is a real treasure, but I thought it would be a, a good thing to begin for the benefit of our viewers, many of whom are not familiar with the scientific and medical network, if, if you said a few words about it. Yes, sure. Well, I, I was the actual director of the network between 1986 and 2000, and then I've been program director since then. Uh, I managed to um, hive off the administrative and accounts aspects <clears throat> and concentrate on the creative part, which was rather nice for me. But the, the Scientific and Medical Network was founded in 1973 by a number of senior people, um, notably George Blaker, um, who was a civil servant at the Department for Ed Education and Science and New Gandhi in India, because he had some postings in India. Then there was uh, Dr. Peter Leggett, who was the Vice-Chancellor of University of Surrey, a mathematician and aeronautical engineer. Then there was Sir Kelvin Spencer, who had been the Chief Scientist at the Ministry of Power in the 1950s. And then finally, the medical part was Dr. Patrick Shackleton, who was Dean of Postgraduate Studies at the University of Southampton Medical School. And they were, in fact, brought together by um, Father Andrew Glazewski, who was a Polish priest who had an interest. He was a sensitive himself, and he had an interest in, in the sort of higher realities. And what brought these founders together was that they all had mystical experiences and they knew firsthand that there was more to reality than just the physical. And they were concerned that young scientists and doctors being trained were also being trained into a, a, an exclusively materialistic way of thinking. And so they were looking to expand 
the basis of science and medicine beyond the restrictions of scientific materialism. So that was the original impulse for the founding of the network. And how it happened, which is quite a nice story, and is that they had a meeting of about 12 people at Exeter University, chaired by Sir Kelvin Spencer and, and George Blaker. And then each of them agreed to write a letter to a few selected professional friends to ask whether they'd like to join this network. And it was the first organization to call itself a network, as far as I know. Now it's very common. And that the letter was carefully drafted so that they could either ignore it or um, respond enthusiastically and say, yes, they'd like to be a part of this uh, new initiative. And they got about 50 responses. And so these were the original uh, Scientific and Medical Network members. And now how many uh, members do you have today? Well, uh, it hasn't been a linear progression because uh, we we had our maximum number of merely 3,000 um, about 20 years ago. And, and we've, we are in a situation where I think a lot of people uh, don't join organizations anymore. I mean, with so much information out there that people can get, get all the information they need. And younger people as well have different ways of networking. And so I think all the um, uh, organizations, membership organizations are under a little bit of pressure. Uh, but we've got about 850, I think, and, and rising at the moment because we've had a very active program over the last year. Well, and as I recall, you have also founded a project within the scientific and medical network called the Galileo Commission. Can can you explain that? Yes, that's that's been going for about four years. And the Galileo Commission, the reason it's called the Galileo Commission, and is with this parallel of Galileo trying to persuade the professor of philosophy, not let alone the cardinals, uh, to look through the telescope um, at what he what he had established about the moons of Jupiter. And so we have a parallel situation where a lot of uh, committed materialistic scientists are not prepared to look at the, any evidence which might contradict that metaphysic. In fact, they don't even recognize it's a metaphysic because they think that science is is devoid of metaphysics. It's in, entirely neutral. Uh, and they, they confuse um, what is technically called scientism, um, which is an ideological philosophy or an ideological approach, with the scientific method, um, which is an open inquiry, open and critical inquiry. Um, and so... Um, we, we we got together about 100 um, prominent people in the field you know, to back a report written by Professor Harold Wallach, um, which um, is, has been was published in 2018. And, and uh, we've got at the moment about 840 people on our mailing list, and you know, about 300 plus 350 professional affiliates is academics and uh, advisors, and then the rest, friends, people who are interested. And we've just had our second Galileo Commission Summit, um, which was very well attended by about 370 people. I gather, David, that uh, one of the major inspirations for the work that you do uh, comes out of uh, the teachings of Emanuel Swedenborg, who uh, I think that's now well over 200 years ago. Yes, absolutely. Um, Swedenborg um, was an extraordinary man, and, and he's not very well known in the mainstream at all. 
Uh, he was originally a scientist, engineer. He was offered the chair of mathematics at Uppsala University when he was 27. And so he was no slouch in that department. He wrote a two-volume book on the brain, about 700 pages, and was one of the first people to identify lateralization of hemisphere function. And Peter Fennick can tell you something about that. And, and so he, he was also a politician. He was in, he sat in the upper house of the Swedish parliament, uh, and was credited with a number of inventions. But what happened is that when he was in his mid fifties, suddenly he found his inner senses opening, uh, so that he could see into the invisible worlds. And, and he started writing about this in very elegant Latin. And, and what struck me about, about this, um, when I first came across it, which is in my final year at university, uh, was how sober all these accounts were. So he would be talking about what most people would regard as extraordinary experiences, but in a very matter of fact way. And I learned also there are a number of well attested, uh, incidents which, um, you know, indicate his, his clairvoyant powers, which were checked out by the philosopher Kant. And and Kant actually was satisfied um, that these experiences really did happen to Swedenborg, but of course, he had no way of explaining them. And being an academic, he really didn't really want, even in those days, to look through the telescope. You know, in an earlier interview I did on philosophy and psychical research with uh, a young philosopher, Jason Reza Giorgiani, he uh, pointed out that Kant in his book, I think it's called Dreams of a Spirit Seer, basically tried to debunk Swedenborg. And yet at the same time, it seemed that Kant's philosophy, which uh, sometimes referred to as transcendental idealism, uh, seemed to have been inspired by Swedenborg. Yes, that's an interesting paradox. I mean, in Dreams of a Spirit Seer, and I actually have an essay about this, which is one of my presidential addresses from the Swedenborg Society, uh, he doesn't even spell Swedenborg's name right. And so it's like a kind of cartoon. Um, and you're right. Um, he, he owes something of a debt, um, to Swedenborg. But he, as an academic, he feels that he can't commit himself to, um, the sort of transcendental perspective, which, um, Swedenborg was actually experiencing and, and writing about. And in, in your work, uh, particularly in your book, Resonant Mind, and in, in your new book uh, as well, A Quest for Wisdom, you suggest that we can learn a lot about the afterlife, and in particular, the past life review process, by uh, studying the writings of Swedenborg. He seemed to have uh, direct knowledge of these things. Yes, I would say so. Uh, and indeed, um, he, he knew when he was going to die. And, and so in March 1772, he told his landlady that he would be uh, departing for the other world before the end of the month. And, and that therefore he would pay his rent up until the end of March and she could advertise the room after that, which is rather a nice story. And then so I think it's about 28th of March. He said his goodbyes and he went upstairs and died. Um, otherwise left his body. Um, but what he experienced before that uh, was the process of death in order to be able to describe it in his book, Heaven and Hell. And so he's, he's, he's taken through the process by, you might say, his guides or supporters, 
or support system on the other side. And then he describes a process not unlike what's described in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, where you are you encounter different levels of the angelic world. And so you start with the celestial angels, and if you can't can't stand the light, then you move down to the spiritual angels, and if you still can't stand that, then the natural angels, and then you go right the way down in inverted commas. Uh, to the point where you feel comfortable and um, which corresponds to your own, as it were, vibrational frequency. And that's where you go um, in inverted commas. And so the, 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 af- the, the afterlife for Swedenborg is a state of consciousness um, which corresponds to what he calls the ruling love. And the ruling love is really your, your index, if you like, of where you are on a love and wisdom scale. And, and so the higher, higher you are, um, the more celestial, um, if you like. And now, you use the word you. It, it suggests that there's really a person there on the other side. And as I recall, Swedenborg suggested you have your memories, uh, you have uh, your sense of self, uh, even without a body, or at least the physical body as we know it. Uh, you must have some sort of a body, I, I presume. Yes, I think that was his understanding. And, and, and of course, this feeds into the whole esoteric tradition and the Hindu tradition of subtle bodies. And, and you'll find this in, in more modern researches, such as Robert Crickall, when he tries to, to make a map of the different subtle bodies. And, and normally one would say astral, um, mental, causal, and <coughs> etheric. Sorry, etheric would, would come first. And so uh, you can see, Swedenborg's not as precise as that, but you, you can see that um, he's in the same ballpark um, in terms of there being subtle bodies. And also, as you said, um, that there is really no fundamental change in the individuality um, immediately following death. I mean, I think there are changes after that, but then, you know, it's hard to, to know when one's in a three-dimensional form, which is kind of sealed off. Um, from the deeper levels of what we're talking about. Well, one has a sense that Swedenborg, for a period of of many years, decades, I think, from his awakening, began to engage in, uh, I think he would have said, daily conversations with people on on the other side. And uh, he's written encyclopedic uh, works describing all of this. He founded a, a religion, and uh, yet I think you would describe him more as a scientist exploring the afterlife than as a religious prophet. Yes, he probably combined both. I mean, it, it, had he had it existed, he would definitely probably have been president of the Scientific and Medical Network um, because he he did, he never lost this this scientific curiosity and rigor, um, which he applied to these various different realms. Um, but, uh, he, yes, you're right. He did, he did, he, fa- he effectively founded a church, you know, the Swedenborg, um, church. Although I'm not absolutely clear whether this was something he did in his lifetime. I think it was something that happened afterwards. And indeed, the Swedenborg Society in London was founded in 1810. Um, so not that, long after his death, 28 years after his death. And that, that, that has a, an extraordinary archive. And, and, and people, uh, people like 
One of the most distinguished presidents, interestingly, of the Swedenborg Society was Sir William Barrett, um, who was also president of the Society for Psychical Research and a leading physicist of his day and a senior member, fellow of the Royal Society. Well, I think in the U.S., a big influence of Swedenborg was upon the father of William James, who's considered the father of American psychology. His father, Henry James Sr., was a lay minister, really, in the Swedenborg tradition and had a huge impact on the American transcendentalist movement. Yes, that's very interesting. And, and William James is one of my great intellectual heroes, and he probably is of yours as well, and maybe some of the listeners. Um, and he was obviously steeped in um, this epistemology and ontology, if you like, of, of Swedenborg. Uh, and so it, it wouldn't come as something completely surprising to him when he found that other people were describing similar experiences, which, of course, he documents in detail in his famous Varieties of Religious Experience, his Gifford Lectures in Edinburgh in 1901-2. William James also, before he died, his last great work was a book called, or a series of essays on radical empiricism. And I'm under the impression that his approach to radical empiricism is to say, yes, let's use the empirical methods of science, but the the most direct experience we have is, is our inner experience. That's even uh, before sensory experience. So we have to include that. Yes, absolutely. Now, I think, I think radical empiricism is a very important principle because it means you have to take everything into account. And I think that some, some scientists try to avoid this by kind of bracketing off um, what they can't explain. And an interesting example of this was, was uh, Freeman Dyson um, because he wrote a foreword or one of the forewords to Extraordinary Knowing by Elizabeth Lloyd Meyer, which came out in 2006. And what what happened to her was that she, um, by means of map dowsing, she was able to relocate a harp that her daughter had lost, and and um, by a circuitous route, because it's rather a long story, she she recovered the harp, and was convinced that she would only have done so um, with with, with the input of this map dowser. Um, in terms of the, the sort of psychic faculty, if you like. And so um, what Dyson said, well, um, because it didn't happen to me, uh, I don't need to take that into account in my system of reality. And I, I feel that's a bit disingenuous. But even due to the fact that he wrote this forward in the first place, um, he was attacked by his fellow scientists um, for kind of, you know, besmirching his his ideological purity. So, so I think that was a that was a very interesting instance. I I did know Freeman Dyson a little bit. He was an honorary member um, of the network and a very broad minded um, you know, scientist and intellectual. And so I think he must have felt a lot of pressure, um, you know, t- to distance himself um, from this. But as Jeff Kripal and and also at an earlier stage. Alfred Russell Wallace said, there are, there are no impossible experiences. So if something's impossible, it's not the problem with the experience, it's a problem with your theory. 
Well, I should think that uh, the work that you're doing with the scientific and medical network puts you sort of on the front lines of this huge metaphysical battle, I think, that's going on right now uh, between the uh, materialists and I guess you could say, uh, broadly speaking, the the post-materialists, people who feel that uh, we can't limit ourselves strictly to material science. After all, it's it's a metaphysical position. It's not justified in, uh, by the scientific method. That's exactly right. And I, I think the, 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 the difficulty is that, that um, philosophy and history, history and philosophy of science is not part of what scientists are trained in. It's a specialist discipline. And so they, they don't know that science actually rests on a philosophy in spite of what Mach and the positivists said. And, uh, and therefore, there's, for instance, just the assumption that unity is desirable or that unity um, is um, an important criterion for um, you know, epistemological or methodological approaches. And, and Nicholas Maxwell has done a lot of work on this more recently uh, and he sh- he shows a, there's a kind of nest of um, philosophical assumptions, and and I think the main one um, that we're we're trying to call into question, and though so far as consciousness and neuroscience is concerned, is the assumption that the brain generates consciousness, and and therefore of course if if this is true, that there, there could not be by definition any post mortem existence, any existence of extended mind. Um, and many other phenomena are just impossible in principle, and th- this is really the the position of the of the, of the what what uh, Charlie Tart would call the pseudo skeptics, um, that they 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 maintain that everything must fit into a naturalistic and physicalist scheme, and that's the big um, metaphysical philosophical endeavour at the moment is to bring everything into this naturalistic framework. And I don't think this works because consciousness is a quite different phenomenon. Now, I know you're very concerned with ethics, and uh, I think it's ironic in a way. Uh, one of the foremost proponents of this idea that consciousness is a product of the brain was is the great philosopher Bertrand Russell. And uh, as I read your book, I see you've written favorably about Russell. He was a, uh, a social activist. He was on the forefront of ethical thinking, and at the same time, he, he was leading the resistance against the idea of post-mortem survival. Yes, he was. But there's an interesting um, uh, sort of sequel um, to this. In, in my book, Survival, um, I, the last chapter, I talk about the instances of people who have come back to say they survived. And among these is Bertrand Russell. Uh, and this is, this is, the irony is not lost on him. Um, which is part of the amusement, because he says um, that if if he had read the account of what he's trying to convey during his physical lifetime, he wouldn't have believed it. And so he finds himself in this this paradoxical situation of um, having found that he his consciousness and mind still existed. Um, not only that, he said that that it, it was working; his mental faculties were working far better than they were. When he died, because his body was very tired, you know, he was ninety-eight, and um, and he 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 never never really kind of let up, 
and he was imprisoned in his in the in when his nineties you know, for his work in CND. But what what he what he describes though is he he says that it's entirely understandable um, that he should have thought what he thought while he was still alive, and um, but he now realizes that the physical existence is almost like a dream. Um, but it's but it's quite logical um, to think that it's all there is while you're in it. But now he's got another perspective, and then of course he has to reconstruct his understanding of um, the physical world and its relationship to consciousness and mind. You are referring to uh, automatic writing uh, that came through. I forget who the medium was. Rosemary Brown. She was the one who also composed music, despite having no musical education. So this kind of evidence is is really, uh, I call it almost resonant, because um, what Russell, in inverted commas, says in the in the text is that maybe some people will be able to tell something typical about him from just the way he speaks and his, his phrasing. Um, but of course, he realizes that there's no way he can persuade um, you know, a skeptic like himself um, that it is actually him speaking and not just something, something just made up. But I think uh, there are other books, um, one of which I actually read in manuscript recently, where um, the the sheer intelligence and articulacy of the communications uh, means that you 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 could credit them, you know, to the person who they say they came from. But of course, there's no way of of establishing that sort of beyond reasonable doubt. Well, Rosemary Brown is a very interesting case because, as, as you point out, she was not highly educated. And uh, to my recollection, she produced hundreds of pieces of music in the style of many of the great composers uh, of the past, in addition to the literary output that you've just referred to. I mean, Bertrand Russell had a, a very unique personality and style of writing that I think does come through in, in that passage you quoted. Yes, well, that's well. That was my conclusion, um, but but of course, other people might interpret that passage differently. But on the other hand, almost nobody knows of its existence. If if I recall correctly, David, you are also a musician. Not really. I mean, I I do play a bit of piano, and occasionally I I have played the organ, I and mean, I'd like to restart actually. But I. I wouldn't call myself a musician. I love music, particularly the, the music of Bach. Um, but, um, uh, my, my interest is, is less active than, than actually I'd like it to be. And so you may prompt me into, um, starting to play a bit more. I'm referring now to your essay on Albert Schweitzer, who was a well-known musician and an organist, and I, you referred at the time to your own uh, study of the organ and uh, box music. But I, I should think that gives you enough of a background to be able to evaluate uh, some of the other musical productions of Rosemary Brown. Yes, I suppose that would that would be the case, but but it's not something I've actually gone into in any detail. I mean, I know about it, um, but um, I would have to do a bit more research. I mean, if there's some pieces by Bach, then I could certainly I would be able to recognise um, the the patterns. 
Um, because if you, one of the things I, I love doing, and I was doing it last year with a, um, a Dutch organist called Van Dozelaar, um, was following the scores um, while listening to the music. Um, because then you begin to understand the architecture of the way that um, Bach builds his fugues up um, and, and there's a, there's some pat, three, three passages going up, and then it'll level off and there'll be a corresponding three passages coming down. And, and you, you begin to understand, um, the way he uses musical language. And, and one, one beautiful example is, is the wedge fugue. This is the E minor fugue. Uh, and, um, if you look on the page, it looks like a wedge. Um, and, and of course, you can't hear that necessarily unless you translate that the music into, into onto the page. But it, it, on the page, it's absolutely clear why it was called the wedge. Well, I am under the impression, back to Rosemary Brown, that uh, at least one professional musicologist uh, studied her reproductions in detail and felt that she had indeed been producing uh, works that were. Uh, uh, contained, I guess you'd say, the musical signature of the original composers to who these were credited. Yes, I, I, I think you're right. And, and of course, this then poses the, the question, um, you know, well, where, where, does this, where does this come from? Because you're, and the two standard answers would be, well, it's sort of read out of the Akashic record um, or the, the super ESP super consciousness soup, uh, or in some way, she was inspired by the composer, um, him or herself. And, and I think the same applies really, you know, if you're looking at, at some of the stories about Swedenborg, did he really speak to the people he claims to have spoken to? And, and you're, you're up against the same structural issue and that either, um, it, things are as they say, as he said they were, uh, or, um, you have at least to posit you know, an extraordinary degree of, of um, extrasensory perception, which already is an advance um, away from a purely materialistic understanding of reality. Now, I know in the case of Swedenborg, there's good reason to attribute extrasensory perception to him. He, for example, uh, famously at a dinner party in Gothenburg, Sweden, announced that he was aware of a fire going on simultaneously in Stockholm, 300 miles away. And, and this is in the 1700s when they didn't have electronic communication. Uh, but, but that was confirmed. Uh, on the other hand, I'm also aware in Swedenborg's writings that he, he claimed to have discourses with the people who lived on the moon and uh, on Venus. Uh, uh, he described them as inhabiting some sort of physical reality, which would seem from current day knowledge not to be possible. Yes, though that's, I mean, that's, that's always an interesting issue, you know, where, where, where you have your boggle threshold. Uh, and if you, um, if you feel, if you start from, um, you know, the, his account of, of, um, <clears throat> you know, talking to people, you know, beings on the moon, then that, that might give you a reason to dismiss everything else that he did, um, as equally nonsensical. And so I, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a difficult one because, um, you know, we are not him, um, and we haven't had that experience. And, and, um, we can't rule it out in principle, even if we 
would think it's it's, it's vanishingly improbable and unlikely. But I think you, what's what's of more interest to me um, are some of the conversations he reports with the, the Lutheran reformers, um, because he has these debates about, according to his own account, about vicarious atonement, um, which he didn't believe in, um, but which Luther and Calvin and Melanchthon did believe in. Um, and um, they, this is reported in a kind of theological debate um, in an extremely articulate manner. And so uh, you could say, well, that's just, um, you know, using an imaginary character as a foil. And, and so beyond a certain point, there's actually no way of knowing. Uh, and it becomes a matter of, of overall trust and integrity. I know William James once commented on this sort of thing uh, in in his language, uh, basically 19th century language, in, in which he said, when it comes to the conflict between the mystics and the scientifics, he said, the mystics generally have it correct with regard to what they experience, and the scientifics have it correct with regard to the interpretation. Ah, well, that's interesting. Um, and I know he he also felt that it was impossible to to get you know, knock down evidence in the in the area that that would convince everybody, and I, and I think that's still true. There's a sort of element of the trickster um, in this in this field, um, but of course the, your interpretation coming back to our earlier conversation depends on on the range of explanations that you're prepared to take into account or prepared to to countenance. Uh, and so if, if one looks, for instance, at um, the interpretations of near-death experiences, then most neuroscientists will say, well, it's got to be something that can entirely be explained through no normal or unusual neural processes. Um, whereas uh, the mystic, the person or the person who's experienced that themselves, especially if they have um, something to report during the period of unconsciousness, will say, no, it was more than that. I'm under the impression, for example, that amongst the founders of the Society for Psychical Research, including William James, but most of the other uh, great founders of that society, and they're very distinguished uh, people, uh, came to the conclusion personally that they could accept survival of uh, personality or the soul after death. Uh, but for the most part, they weren't willing to go so far as to to say that it was established as a scientific uh, reality. Yes, I think that's true, and and there's and this is more in a way it's more of a philosophical um, issue than than a scientific issue. Um, but uh, again, I mean, my approach to this is is to take a kind of legal forensic um, angle. Um, because what you're trying to do, and supposing you, you take, for instance, um, the 1200 pages of Phantasms of the Living by you know, Gurney, Podmore and Myers, which was an early publication of the SPR from 1886. Now, if you, if you read that book, which I, I did a long time ago, then the quality of analysis and intelligence that comes across is 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 very very clear. I mean, these people were fellows at Trinity College, Cambridge, and they, you know, they were among the most intelligent, well-read, um, you know, people of that day. And and then 
if you then look at, for instance, let's just take the example of crisis apparitions, um, which is what when um, someone who's dying appears to someone who knows them closely, um, but without that second person knowing that the person is dying, but and, and generally only finds out you know, two or three days later, and then then you sort of put the jigsaw puzzle together, and so um, if you if you if you look at what you can, can do, obviously, is to check up and, and, and make sure that you've got the accounts straight, um, that wasn't, it wasn't made up and, and you check, well, did, did the person tell other people before they learned that actually the person had died and so on? So there are all sorts of, you know, procedural and investigative matters that you can look into. And, and, but at the end of the day, you, this is now, this is really quite a well established fact that there are crisis apparitions. And so my argument is that you, you, you have to understand or construct an interpretation of reality and the nature of consciousness, which can account in some way, um, for this phenomenon. And, and so what people say is that, um, and this, this is quite, widespread across a range of different kind of evidence is that you, you can in your imagination and when you die and leave your physical body, you can actually go where you think. And if you think yourself into the presence of um, a loved one, um, then they will um, reciprocally um, see you um, and sense you. And in some cases, and as an apparition, you, you you will appear and and then disappear and actually it's only when you disappear when the when the person the the uh, who the, the percipient sees the, the person verticomas disappearing they realize it was a um, an hallucination or an apparition in the first place um, and so in this case the the reciprocal uh, cases are are maybe some of the most interesting because you've got two independently or more meshing reports which correspond on the one hand to an apparition but on the other hand to an out-of-body experience. This is slightly different because the people haven't necessarily died. Um, but for instance, <clears throat> you, in some cases, the name, the dying person will say the name of the person to whom they are simultaneously appearing. So witnesses uh, at the deathbed get have that uh, observation. Yes, um, and 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 this is where putting these different accounts together is obviously crucial um, for the credibility of this whole field. Um, it's when it's when you get these this meshing of different accounts um, and and but the same timing um, that you know, these things become particularly significant. I think. Part of your work, David, as I understand it, uh, is looking at the ethical implications uh, of this research. It's not just the scientific implications. It has uh, something to say about how we live our lives, uh, that we're all interconnected, and that should uh, in some way impact the way we treat each other. Well, that's really the fundamental thesis of my book, Hole in One, which is now republished as Resonant Mind. And in it, I look at two or three things, in fact. One is psychometry, that this object reading that, um, it's, it's possible to pick up something about the lives of, um, of people, uh, just by touching and holding, um, items that are associated with them. 
Um, and that's, that's what I call empathetic resonance. So it's an example of empathetic resonance. And the second and main phenomenon is a life review. And um, where you, you experience every aspect of the event uh, or an event in your life. So not just, you don't just experience it from your own original point of view. You experience it from the point of view of everybody who is involved in it. But I mean, taking a simple example, it would just be, let's say, one person. Um, but it might, it can get multi-layered and much more complex than that. And, and so you realize, you realize from that, that, um, we must be fundamentally interconnected in terms of one universal mind of which we are microcosms, if you like, or individualizations. Otherwise, such, such a, um, a, an empathetic resonance in life review couldn't actually happen. And then the third element, um, is, is the mystical experience where people experience themselves as, as the oneness, as the universal mind, as the divine mind, um, itself. And this is a direct experience of what in the Western esoteric tradition would be called gnosis. And which, which has, has sort of fallen out of favor, um, because our whole culture is based on, on reason and analysis, which is the left hemisphere. And reason for the Greeks was, uh, that a secondary or inferior faculty of knowing, if you like, that the, 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 mo the superior faculty was what Bonaventure calls the eye of contemplation, and which, which is the, the gnosis eye. And I've been, I've been trying to think of a new term um, for describing this, um, which would, uh, as a kind of some equivalent of the telescope, but we haven't quite got there yet. I think in one of your essays suggests that uh, it's a question of right and left hemisphere, and, and we live in a left hemisphere-dominated culture, uh, whereas a right hemisphere-dominated culture might be more appropriate. This all comes from the, the, the seminal work of Ian McGilchrist, who I've known for you know, 40 years. And Ian is a, is a, is a neuropsychiatrist and literary scholar um, who's the author of The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, which came out in 2009. And it's an extraordinarily brilliant and influential um, book because he, he, his claim is that our society, Western societies are are dominated by this left hemisphere um, analytical reductionist thinking, whereas the right hemisphere is is the creative, intuitive, and the grasper of the whole. And so his revolutionary claim um, is the right hemisphere is in fact the master, and the left hemisphere is the emissary. But of course, the left hemisphere thinks it's the master and has and then dismisses the importance of the of the right hemisphere. And what, what he emphasizes, of course, is that these hemispheres have to work together. It's no use having, having one working without the other. And then all the great sages and, and philosophers, and I know Radha Krishnan, for instance, um, have said the same. They said, you, we have to combine rational analysis and intuitive insight. And the, these, in, and even in science, you couldn't make a, a scientific discovery, an important scientific discovery, uh, without using your intuitive insight. Now, Einstein is a, obviously a classic example of that. But then once you have that, that insight into the whole, which is a direct form of knowing, then you need to work out the mathematics and the analysis um, in support of it. 
So it's really a question uh, that we're all faced with in in a way, uh, living in two worlds simultaneously. Yes, but I think the the important implication which I, I drew out um, in my final chapter called and you know, towards an ethic of interconnectedness is that if if at various levels and you can you can derive this from symbiosis from e- ecosystems from quantum entanglement if if there is a fundamental wholeness and oneness uh, of which we are partial expressions um then effectively we are each other at a deep level um which means when we harm someone else or when we when we do good to someone else we're actually doing it to ourselves and that's the actual realization that's the fundamental uh, and central realization of the life review and it's why people come back and their lives are changed um, because they they realize that it's not a matter of of competing um of getting one up on your 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 neighbor or your competitors we're all in this together and and so um we we need to be living life a life for the whole rather than a life just for our own individual interest isn't that the basic message of of the golden rule and uh, uh the teachings of Jesus when he says what you do to the least among us you do to me totally yes i mean i make this point uh in the book and of course there are many different versions and traditions of the the golden rule but what what i what i make clear which is not always clear in the in the religious formulations is is that this this is a logical consequence of the oneness and universality of mind and heart i should add as well because the in the in this deep experience that people have uh, it's never just about light and understanding it's always also infused with love uh, and this is a huge contrast to the scientific outer oriented understanding of the universe that it is impersonal and unfeeling and um, so if you look f- if you look from the inside and and deep inside this is what you you arrive at but if you look just at the outside um then of course we are um a a very small solar system in this vast um you know galaxy and and as pascal pointed out in the 17th century we're completely insignificant physically but he said we are reeds but we are thinking reeds he said un roseau pensant a thinking reed so it's we all, we're all like that i mean we are vulnerable physically um, but our thought and our intuition and our our capacity to understand um is is what marks us out or can do you write about love very eloquently and especially in reference to the work of Swedenborg and also uh, the Bulgarian mystic uh, I'm going to ask you to pronounce his name because I'm afraid I'll mispronounce it well there are, there are, he has he had his family name which is Peter Dunoff uh, and then his spiritual identity um is Bainsa Duno so it's quite similar the Duno and the Dunoff or the Dunoff are similar um but uh, the the Bainsa Duno is is the um the the being if you like as i understand it um who spoke through um the physical um personality of Peter Dunoff 
And, and both of these uh, great prophetic figures uh, wrote very eloquently about love, and uh, which I think is, is so important. It's really central, I think, to your thinking and uh, to mine as well. It's central to my name even. But I, I, I think that uh, we live in an era in which uh, to even talk about love, it, it's, it gets debased. It's so trite that the, the word loses its power. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And uh, what 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 Dunoff explained was there are different levels of love. Um, there's a, there's a there's a love level of personality. Then there's the friendship, and then there's the third level, which is where it begins to take on more power. Where he says it's love is a force in the mind, and and by that he means that people who embody love in their lives, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. Um, <clears throat> Albert Schweitzer and other people, and then they 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 in, embody it in a way that it becomes visible, and 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 they sacrifice themselves accordingly. And then the final level is what he calls love as a, as a principle in the spirit, and this represents the harmonization of opposites, um, the, the 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 bringing together of the light and the dark, and and the the the. As a, as a really as a fundamental um, principle, but what's what's important, I think, is also its context within uh, what he explains as the pentagram, and and so the, the, there are five principles um, which um, are love, wisdom, truth, justice, and goodness or virtue, and they make up the pentagram, and this is also expressed in the sacred dance that he designed, which is called panurythmy. So the third part of the panurythmy is when you dance the actual shape of the pentagram. And so the, the love is associated with life, um, the wisdom with light, and the truth in combining love and wisdom um, is, in his understanding and in many other spiritual traditions, brings freedom. So truth is associated with freedom. And, and these, what the, the, what's important for me about these principles is exactly that they are principles, they're not beliefs. And, and he, he said that everybody can believe in these, the importance of these principles and embodying them. Uh, you don't need to sign up to, to any kind of creedal um, belief system. You, you just need to uh, try and understand these principles more and more deeply, the masculine and feminine um, also uh, coming together and and then see how 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 best to embody them and he said love is life for the whole and so it's devoting yourself um to these principles so i i think we need a new discourse and understanding about love um next next week i'll be doing um a, a book briefing with a, a, on the new book called radical loving um by uh, rabbi wayne dozik and then last year we had, I did an interview with Michael um, Lerner on his book Revolutionary Love, um, and and so I I think it's I think it's beginning to come forward, and we 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 need to, we need to have this conversation about how to enact love um, at this deep level. Gandhi was doing the same thing because it has to be done non-violently, and um, and and how how to address a world that actually is run on militaristic um, lines um, through force and violence. 
And what, what Dernoff also explains is that, that there's a, there are these d- different degrees of, of, um, four degrees of human culture. And so there is violence is the, is the, is the, as it were, the lowest level. Um, and, and then, then there is justice, um, and, uh, sort of violence and force. Then there's a justice and then it, it moves, um, into love as the sublime, principle and, and which he insists is the direction of our evolution and barbara marx hubbard says something something very similar i've missed one out but but you get the idea well i'm impressed by the fact that you were so moved uh when you first encountered the work of peter dunov that you actually uh took the time and and the trouble to learn the bulgarian language so that you could read his works uh directly Yes, I did. And it so happened that um, I, uh, there was a Bulgarian woman living in my local village who used to go to the Women's Institute market on the Thursday morning. And so I spent uh, 18 months, you know, twice a week having lessons with her, with a you know, fat Bulgarian grammar. And I am a linguist, um, but I'd never done anything, never learned Russian, and so I didn't know the script. And so you have to kind of rewire your brain you know, to recognize shapes in a different way. Um, and that was very, very rewarding because, as you know, I mean, it just, it just give a trivial example of the difference of language and connotation. If you take the word bread uh, in English or American, that it, it uh, conjures up, you know, a certain shape of loaf. But if you say pain in French, that immediately conjures up something else, um, which is a long, thin stick um, of a baguette. Well, there's a lot more variety of bread actually in France now than, than there used to be. Uh, so in, in, you, you have uh, Bulgarian for love is Lubov and, and wisdom is Mudrost and, and, um, the Svoboda uh, is freedom. And so these, these have quite different resonances, if you like. And one of the things that, that happens in the mountains is that people will, will form stones into these messages. And so you'll read a message on the ground which says, Bog Elubov, God is love. And, and, and so it, it's kind of arresting to, to arrange the natural elements uh, into these messages. David Lorimer, this has been a stimulating conversation, to put it mildly, and I know we've just scratched the surface of, of your vast wealth of knowledge and experience. I hope that I can... In, arrange for you to come back on New Thinking Aloud often in the future. Uh, this has been a delightful conversation. I want to thank you so much for being with me. Well, I'd love to, uh, Jeff. And as you say, there's a myriad of things uh, that we could talk about, but I think we have actually covered some very important points during our conversation. Well, once again, thank you for being with me. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.